Open with me, if you would, to the book of Obadiah. Once again, we are coming to uh, another book where we're expecting a lot of crinkly pages. Some of you might skip over Obadiah altogether. It is the shortest book, not only in the Minor Prophets, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, it is one chapter. It is often smashed to the prophets before and behind it. Today we are going to open up this wonderful little book and we are going to see some familiar themes. We are going to see those same themes highlighted as they have been in all of the minor prophets. God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's justice, and God's mercy. But Obadiah does it in a very particular way, of course. As we come to the book of Obadiah, what we are left with is the absolute conclusion in crystal clarity that God, Yahweh, is the God of the nations that he is not Israel's God, he is the God. And this is going to be a wonderful reminder and an encouragement to us that all of Scripture, even those parts that we skip over accidentally, maybe that we're unfamiliar with, are not only profitable for us, but they're necessary for us. There is a needed message that we need to hear, even 3,000 years later, that will come from Obadiah. And so I want to open our time together by reading verses 1 through 4 to set the stage for where we're going. Obadiah, verses 1 through 4, this is what God says. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in clouds, you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we see even in these opening verses um, the condemnation of pride that would lift ourselves up. And Lord, although it's easy to see pride in Edom, it's easy to see pride in Israel, it's easy to see pride in others, uh, it's deceptive and difficult to see in ourselves. And so Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word today. And Lord, we need you to open our eyes because in our stubbornness, in our flesh, in our pride, we are blind to your truth. Uh, we don't bring our own intellect, our own understanding to these passages, uh, although study is helpful these are spiritual truths that can only be spiritually appraised. And so, Lord, we are dependent, and we need you. And so we ask that not only would you open our eyes to understand these truths, but through the power of your Spirit, we ask that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that you would help us to obey. Lord, we know that you are faithful. And so we rejoice in the fact that not only have you called us, but that you continue to sanctify us and make us more like you. We praise you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but there's few things in life that are more frustrating to me than a double standard. Uh, when something is one way for someone and another way for someone else. And we've all seen it in various you know, settings. It might be in the classroom where the teacher has their favorite students and their essays get graded maybe a little bit differently than the rest of the class that they don't quite like as much. Maybe uh, it's on the field or on the court where the coach's kid gets a little bit more playing time uh, than they probably should. Maybe it's in the office where you and your coworker do a very similar job and you have very similar outputs and production levels, uh, but they get the recognition and the promotion and you just seem to consistently lag behind in that for some reason. Uh, maybe it's far more personal than that. Maybe it's that person who demands a certain standard out of you but then refuses to have those same standards placed upon themselves. And the reality is that as fallen human beings, you and I are naturally inconsistent. 
Again, it's easy to see in other people, but we like justice, but we also like grace, at least when it applies to us. When it comes to the minor prophets, we've seen over and over God call out and condemn Israel's sin. They are a fallen, faithless people who have walked far away from their covenant obligations that God brought them into. And God has rightly dispensed justice upon them. But what we see in Obadiah is that God's standard is one of universal justice. That God's expectation for Israel's right response extends to the nations. And that God calls for the worship and obedience of all people, no matter who they are, no matter when they live. Um, and so as we open up Obadiah, we're going to look at it kind of in two parts. The first thing that we're going to see is the messenger. We're going to go over the background information. We're going to understand who wrote it and when they wrote it and why they wrote it. And then we'll look at the message itself. And because Obadiah is so short, we will get through the entire book today. Not just a couple of verses in a week, but you get an entire book in a week here. And we'll still take communion together, and I think it's all going to fit together very nicely. So don't worry, we'll get through this. But as we open up Obadiah, we do want to understand, first of all, who the messenger is. What, what are the basics of this wonderful little book? And as we open Obadiah, like all the minor prophets, first of all, we have to establish who wrote it. And if you go to Obadiah verse 1, it says, the vision of Obadiah, and that's exactly as much information as we have. In some of these minor prophets, we've been given not only the name, but uh, their father's name, their family name, something about their occupation. Obadiah doesn't give us any of that. Obadiah is a fairly common name. There's about a dozen men in the Old Testament named Obadiah. Sometimes people attempt to kind of connect this particular prophecy to one of those names. It's unlikely. It doesn't really fit. And so all we know is that this is a man who spoke for God whose name was Obadiah. And again, we know ultimately that all Scripture is breathed out, is inspired by God. And so the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of this book. Uh, but beyond that, that's all we have. And then we always try to establish not only who wrote it, but who they wrote to. And that's where Obadiah, again, is a little bit unique. Because Obadiah is a Jewish man, likely from the southern kingdom, likely from the area around Jerusalem. He writes uh, particularly concerning something that happened in Jerusalem. Um, and he does write so that Israel will hear. This is part of the Old Testament canon. This book will go to Israel, but the audience, the particular who that this goes to, is not Israel. God has condemned Israel's sin in the past. God has condemned their pride. God has called them to repentance. But in Obadiah, we don't see any of that. Although it deals with them as a people, the warning's not directed for them. The, the call is not for them to repent of any particular sin. Instead, the target of this prophecy is a nation called Edom. And we've heard of that before. At the beginning of the book of Amos, Edom was one of those nations that God pronounced judgment on. But if you remember, in the book of Amos, when God was pronouncing judgment on all those nations, it was primarily to establish Israel's guilt, right? Because if the nations were guilty, then certainly Israel was just as guilty. Well, that's not the parallel here. Uh, now, God is simply speaking to this nation of Edom, to the south and east of Israel, uh, a nation roughly 30, 40 miles wide, about 100 miles long, uh, they were deeply connected to the people of Israel. Uh, the relationship goes back uh, a long way. They both had Abrahamic uh, kind of roots. Uh, Edom gets its name from Esau, the brother of Jacob, the patriarch. 
and the relationship between those two nations as a linked people is going to be an important part of the book, and specifically why Edom is condemned the way that they are. But we'll get more into that as we go through the rest of what he writes. So that's, that's the who. As limited as we can tell, a man named Obadiah wrote it, and he wrote it for Israel, but directed toward Edom. And not only do we need to know who wrote it, it's helpful if we can establish when they wrote it. Uh, And again, sometimes this is very easy to do. Amos gave us the names of kings who ruled while he wrote. He even told us it was two years before the earthquake. So he gave us some very specific specific historical context. Obadiah, once again, doesn't give us any of that. Uh, Along with Joel, this is probably the most difficult prophetic book to date. Uh, And that means that there's a wide range of possibilities. Some scholars say uh, as early as 900 B.C., some say as late as 400 B.C., and a 500-year window is not exactly specific. Now, there is some uh, specific context in the book that leads us to a particular uh, discussion. Uh, On the day you stood aloft, in verse 11, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, apparently there was an attack on Jerusalem by foreign invaders that Edom either participated in or at the very least kind of rejoiced over. And that's the historical information in the book that can potentially help us establish a when to this whole thing. Now, Jerusalem uh, was overrun at several different occasions, but the best fit is very, very likely one uh, that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 21. At that time, Judah ruled over not only the territory of Benjamin and Judah, but over Edom. Since the time of David, uh, the Edomites had kind of been under the Israel's control, but there had been a rebellion. And the king of the south and Judah there had put down that rebellion pretty hard. But that king is named Jehoram. And in Second Chronicles 21.16, we read that the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. See, that, he was a wicked king. And so God brought in foreign people to discipline the land because of their sin. It says, and they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and his sons and his wives so that no son was left him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. So there's this aggression against Judah. And in the same context in 2 Chronicles, it talks about that king putting down the rebellion in Edom and then these Arabians and Philistines coming in to conquer and kind of overrun Jerusalem for a time. So that culturally fits we be dogmatic about that? Absolutely not. Do not divide churches over the dating of Obadiah. But I think it's most likely that this is somewhere around 850, 845 BC, which means that Obadiah is not only an early writing prophet, he's the earliest of the writing prophets. And that makes sense because you see themes from Obadiah picked up in Amos chapter 1. You see some themes, and not only themes, but some specific language picked up in Jeremiah as he writes. And so it appears that later prophets use what Obadiah had put out there. So this is a very early prophecy, and that helps us make some connections there. And that brings us to the why. Uh, Once again, the themes are common. If you're going to ask why, why do all of the minor prophets write? They write because the Holy Spirit inspires them to write. They speak because God tells them what they speak. And when they speak, they speak to highlight the themes of God's sovereignty, holiness, justice, and mercy. That that is universally common. But what's kind of the specific cultural moment? Why does Obadiah write to these people at this time in this way? Well, again, for the first time in the minor prophets, the major thrust is not toward Israel. The implication is that God's people, particularly in Jerusalem, have been threatened and overcome by this foreign enemy. 
And rather than defend Israel and rather than remain even neutral, Edom sided with the aggressors. And they either rejoiced in Israel's destruction or maybe they even participated in it somehow. And God is going to condemn Edom in particular for their pride. Pride is going to play a major role in this prophetic book. And their pride demonstrated itself in their treatment of a people that should have been their brothers. Obadiah writes to show us that God is concerned with Israel. And a critical part of this book is God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel. But Obadiah writes to show us that God condemns sin in all its forms in every place. That God's expectations are not simply for God's people, but that God's expectations are for the nation. That Yahweh is not a tribal God. That he is not the God of a particular people at a particular place in a particular time. Obadiah reminds us that Yahweh is the God of the nations. And he also reminds us in a really precious way that the trials of God's people, even when they are a response to his discipline, don't negate God's faithfulness. That even when God disciplines his people through harsh means, that God remains faithful to punish sin and to restore and redeem his people according to his covenant promises. And that brings us to the rest of the book. That brings us from the messenger to the message itself. And as I said, we're going to work through all 21 verses today. Uh, There's a lot of themes that we've seen before that we'll move through fairly quickly. But when you think of the book of Obadiah, as short as it is, you, you can kind of think of it as breaking down into three sections. The first section deals with the promised destruction that's going to come. Because of what they are, things are going to happen. The second section deals with the evidence, why God is going to do this, how their pride in particular has worked itself out. And then the final section deals with God's promise to restore his people. So the destruction, the the reason for the destruction, and then the promise of restoration to God's people. So let's open this up. In the first section, we're going to call condemning pride. The first nine verses cover that section, and they're related to God's rejection of Edom's pride. Looking at it, verses 1 and 2. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. So it's this scene, it's this call to battle. We've seen uh, God call armies before. In Joel, we had a lot of this similar language, but then God was calling an army to deal with his people. This time, God is calling armies to deal with another sinful nation, the nation of Edom. And he says he's going to make them small among the nations. Now, he's not talking about physically small. Remember, these nations are already relatively physically small. When he's saying he's going to make them small among the nations, he's talking about reducing them to nothing. He's going to destroy their pride. He's going to make them, uh, as he says there in the second half, utterly despised. He's going to weaken them. He's going to bring them to nothing. And the contrast there is God is going to make them small because in their own eyes, they are not small. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, Edom thinks of herself as high and secure. And that imagery is really interesting 
at least to me, it might be to you in a second. Uh, the imagery is really interesting because when we think of people who are proud, we think of people kind of as high and lifted up. That's the imagery that we use. When people are proud, we say that they look down on other people, right? And that's kind of, we get this picture of pride as this lifted up thing. Well, not only is that an appropriate kind of comparison or metaphor, for Edom, that is actually specifically physically true. Their pride was set in their physical position. So one of the cities of Edom is called Petra, and maybe you've heard of that. And you see it on the slide behind me, that famous artifice there. It's a, it's a temple, uh, it's a tomb, it's called the treasury because of the treasures inside of it, not necessarily because it was used as the treasury. But that particular building was carved into the rock and back behind the rock in the first century AD. So this is hundreds of years after Obadiah writes, but that style and that location have been critical for thousands of years to this place. Because if you look at that picture on the right there, you see the approach to Petra. And Petra is an ancient city. And the approach to Petra is about a mile-long travel through a canyon that is about 15 feet wide on average. So imagine bringing an invading army of thousands of men through a mile-long canyon 15 feet wide with twists and turns. And in the rock above that canyon are holes and carvings where people have lived in the clefts of the rock for hundreds and hundreds of years. It, scholars have said that it would take less than 50 men to adequately defend Petra from attack by thousands. It, it is incredibly secure. That passage opens up to a valley surrounded by mountains. You could defend these cities easily. And that's, that's just the example of Petra. The geography of the place makes Edom incredibly physically secure. So when they say we are high and lifted up, when they say who is going to bring us down, you have to understand that physical geography, although we don't like it, matters. It has contributed to the pride of these people because they have said that we dwell securely and no one can deal with us. See, pride's the root of a lot of specific sins. Pride at its heart says, I don't need God. Pride at its heart says, I am self-sufficient, that I am aware enough, that I am capable enough, that I can do it myself, that I can defend myself, that I can see to it myself. Pride absolutely removes humility. It removes the need for grace and mercy. And God is going to judge pride wherever he finds it. And when God judges, he's going to do it in a way that only he can. And that's what he goes on to say. Look at verses 5 and 6. Obadiah says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been, how have you been, excuse me, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave the gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. And that's not really that meaningful to us. Here's the picture that he's saying. When a thief comes and they break into your house, exactly how much can they take? As much as they can carry. And now maybe as much as they can load into the van and drive away. When the thief comes, they only take enough for themselves because they can't take anymore. When you go to harvest grapes, how much do you take? You take the grapes and you leave the gleanings. No one harvests their vineyards by burning the vineyard to the ground every year. That's not how it works. Obadiah says that when God judges you, he's not going to judge you like someone simply coming and collecting a harvest, not like a thief who's just coming to take what they can. God is going to remove you altogether. You are going to be pillaged. You are going to be completely brought out. And not only is their destruction going to be complete, but they are not going to be able to rely on their allies. Look at verse 7. 
All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. If their pride wasn't secure enough in their physical location, their pride was bolstered by the fact that they had allies. Again, think of the historical context. Jerusalem has been overrun. Not by Edom, at least not principally, but by these foreign invaders. And Edom goes, yeah, we'll help you. Use the road. Here's our resources. We'll cheer for you as you do this. God says, don't take pride in your allies. They're all going to turn on you and you'll have nothing. Nobody can save you from the judgment of God. Not only is he going to destroy their physical security, not only is he going to destroy the security and the pride they have in their allies, but he's going to condemn their pride in their own understanding. Look at verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. See, Edom not only thought that they were strong, not only thought that they were secure because of their allies, Edom thought that they were pretty smart. Edom had a pretty good system going. Now, if you look at where Edom is located, once again, we've seen that slide before. Edom is there to the south, and that doesn't mean much to us. Um, because unless you've been in Dr. Bealey's class, uh, the geography doesn't really get presented all that often. Well, you need to understand that running through that area of Israel, why Israel is so constantly at the focal point of international relations, are major trade routes that link Africa, Asia, Europe together. One of them goes right along the Mediterranean Sea there, the International Coastal Highway. Another one of those major trade routes is that one marked over in red. It's called the King's Highway. And that's a primary way to get from Egypt down into Africa, all the way up to the Euphrates River into Asia on the right, up to Europe and the northwest. Edom is situated, if you look at those pictures and you kind of overlap them in their mind, at a critical part of that road. That road passing through those narrow canyons means that you control who passes by there, which means you control things like taxes and tolls for a pretty important international highway. And Edom had used their situation and their territory to become immensely wealthy. Wealthy and secure with good allies. And God says, I'm going to break all of that. I'm going to remove all of those things that you hold so dear. I am going to bring you down to where you are absolutely nothing. So God condemns their pride. And in the next section, the second section of the book, he gives the proof. He read the sentence He gave the verdict, and now he's giving the evidence that backs up that verdict. Look at verse 10. He says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. At the heart of their guilt is their treatment of their brothers, the people of Israel. And again, they are genetically connected. Uh, While they were separated generations ago, Jacob and Esau, while there had always been distance between the people, They were called to live in brotherhood. Israel, even in the law, was prohibited from treating them poorly. And yet Edom is continually antagonistic toward Israel. Uh, They are not just distant cousins. Uh, They're like the annoying distant cousins that they're constantly trying to get back at. Instead of showing mercy, instead of showing like this common brotherly love, uh, they hate Israel. Look at verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And again, we can't be dogmatic about when that occurred, but the date is less important than what they did. 
as these foreign invaders came in and overran Jerusalem, as they plundered it and took the things of the people and took the people themselves, rather than come to their defense, Edom was like one of the foreign invaders. And it makes sense. Because, although we don't talk about it, we kind of like to see people get their due, don't we? Look at verses 12 to 14. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Edom, don't take advantage of Israel's suffering. How cruel could you be to take advantage of someone's suffering? Well, again, we kind of like to see our enemy suffer, don't we? We know that we shouldn't, especially as believers. Uh, We know that we ought to be quick to forgive and to forgive completely. We know that we ought to rejoice when God shows grace and mercy to others, even when they've done something wrong to us. We know that we ought to be long-suffering and patient, even with difficult people, but we struggle with that. In school, when you have the dreaded group project, and there's the one guy out of the four that didn't do anything, and you're up there at the front of the class, and everything goes perfectly, and then the teacher asks that guy a question, you're like, yeah, what is that? We might rejoice in our heart a little bit to see them made low. (laughs) When the guy at work who doesn't do anything gets called out by the boss, maybe disciplined, maybe fired, we do a little fist pump. When the person that gossiped about you gets lit up in social media, I mean, you might not comment, but you're tempted to hit that like button, right? In our pride, we like to pervert justice because after all, they're only getting what they deserve. And yet that's what it is, it's pride. Pride that wants to see myself exalted, particularly at the expense of an enemy. And Edom is condemned for profiting off of that, and it was, we would never do that. We might, though, if we pick up a little bit of credibility when someone else loses theirs. If we pick up a little bit of business when someone else loses theirs. That pride is so destructive because it is so subtle because it's so easy to creep in and so difficult to diagnose. And it makes sense that Edom would gloat over Jerusalem and God says, don't do it. Those are your brothers and you abandon them. Don't enrich yourself off of their destruction. That pride always exalts me and demeans God. Pride always makes much of men and makes very little of the one who made men in his image. And Obadiah closes then with these comforting promises, this final section of the book that starts in verse 15. But these comforting promises, they're not to Edom per se, they're directed back toward Israel. Why is it that Edom should not rejoice in Israel's destruction? Why should Edom be careful not to take advantage of Israel in their day of trouble? Because judgment is coming. And it's coming not only on Edom, but on all the nations. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. 
For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They will drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Obadiah now expands the scope of his prophecy, and now he's writing and speaking of a time in the future when God is going to pour out his justice, not just on a nation, but on all the nations. That idea of the day of the Lord is becoming a continual and pretty familiar theme, I hope, through the minor prophets, and it ought to. Uh, What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a day of absolute clarity about who God is. Right now, nothing but confusion about who God is and what he's done. The day of the Lord brings all of those things to crystal clarity. It is when God pours out his righteous judgment against sin. When he does that against the sins of his people, and when he does that against the sins not just of a nation, but of all nations. It's a day when God also rescues and restores his people Israel. He displays himself in his justice. He exalts himself in his mercy. But why is that a comfort? Why is God judging sin a comfort? Well, remember who's receiving this prophecy. It's not just Edom. This is Israel. It's very likely Judah, particularly at a time after they had been brought very, very low. A message to a people that had been overrun with violence. And again, we might not be able to say specifically when this happened, But we do know that at some point, God is writing to a people that had been overrun, that their goods had been carried off. And yes, God said that would only happen as the people were disobedient. This is written to people who are living in the aftermath of God's judgment, God's righteous judgment. People who have been bruised and broken by God's rod of discipline. So what does God say to his people after he disciplines them rightly for their sin. Well, he says that he doesn't overlook sin anywhere. That Israel's not held to a different standard than Edom. Yes, God used foreign invaders to discipline his people, but in the end, God is going to make all things right. See, they needed a reminder that God was not ignorant of sin and that God had not forgotten them. We need that same reminder. Because God in his sovereignty might move us into difficult situations. And many of our difficult situations might very well come as a result of our sin and our failure and our disobedience, our own poor choices. But God reconciles every account. How is it that Paul can say in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, Paul can say that because the consistent testimony of Scripture is that God deals fully and finally with all sin. And there's comfort in that. There's peace in that. And there's further proof as you go along that God doesn't forget His people. Look at verse 17. But in Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there will be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. In Mount Zion there will be those who escape, survivors, Esau, no survivors. God will be faithful to discipline his people, but he won't do it to the point of destruction. He's going to allow them to live. That God once again promises that a remnant, that a portion of his people will survive. And not only will they survive, but they will 
possess Jerusalem, Zion, and it will be holy. The idea that the city, that particular place that God had designated, will be set apart, sanctified, distinct and different from every other place on earth. That's a continual theme through the minor prophets, that God has chosen Mount Zion, his place, and his city to be a focal point among the nations. And God says that is going to happen at some point, that Jerusalem will be set apart and holy. And when we get to Zechariah, remember that because it extends not only to the people. Jerusalem is going to be so set apart that it extends all the way to the bells of the horses. Again, Zechariah will get there at the end of the year, I promise. Great study. But why? Because God is faithful to his promises. Because God is faithful even when his people are faithless. Because they are going to possess their possessions, not because they earn it, not because they get it back, but because God promised. And if you go to verse 19, it says, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They'll possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shafarad shall possess the cities of the Negev. And you said, that's a lot of places that don't mean anything to me. Understand that. Unless we went through, again, Dr. Bealey's kind of land and Bible class in preparation for our trip to Israel, or if you sat along with that, then some of those things sound familiar. Then you know that the Negev is kind of the southern desert, extremely desolate wilderness area. The Shephelah is the low rolling hills between the coastal plains and the more mountainous areas of Jerusalem. See, geography does matter, I promise you, because what God is saying is that the people who possess a small part now will someday possess the fullness of the land that he promised to them. And the promise of the land did not start in Exodus 19 at the Mosaic Covenant. It goes all the way back to what God promised Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God said, Abraham, I have chosen you, and I'm going to give you land and seed and blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. What is happening to Edom? It's covenant curses based on the Abrahamic covenant. Those who mistreat God's people will find themselves falling under God's discipline. Again, that, this is not new. This is not surprising. This is Abrahamic covenant justice. This weaving together of God's plan of redemption through history. And now God goes back to a very specific land that he promised his people. In Genesis 15, as God gives further boundaries to that, he says that Israel is going to possess the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. A land that Israel never possessed. Not even at the strongest times of David and Solomon. And God says to his weak and broken and disciplined people, I haven't forgotten. A time is coming when I will deal justly with your sin and with the sins of the nations and when I will establish the kingdom that I have promised you. And here's how he ends in verse 21. Salvation shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdoms shall be the Lord's. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Who rules in that coming kingdom? The Savior, Jesus Christ. Whose kingdom is this? Is it good for Israel to be restored? Absolutely. Is the faithfulness of God a blessing for them? Absolutely. Is redemption and restoration a blessing to these people? Absolutely it is, but it is not for their sake. All of this is done for the sake of the name of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. When Israel comes into their kingdom, they do so to the exaltation and the glory of God Almighty. 
This is going to be the day of the Lord, and the glory of God is going to be on display as he rules from Zion over all the nations. Obadiah is that reminder that Yahweh is the God of the nations. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob, but he is equally the God of Edom. The God of Ethiopia, the God of Egypt, the God of America. But sometimes, boy, that's hard to remember, isn't it? It's always been the case. We read it in Psalm 47 this morning that God remains on his throne, but that can be difficult to remember when we live in the world that we do. When kings and nations exalt themselves and make war to expand their borders, it can be difficult to remember that God in his sovereignty establishes kings and princes and rulers and authorities and powers. He establishes their borders. He causes nations to rise and to fall. Even though the world and the culture around us try to redefine what's good and what's evil, even though they pursue sin wholeheartedly, even though they mock us when we don't follow after them, that God doesn't change. That God's standard is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God knows. So we don't have to be afraid because God remains in control. We don't have to try and flow and change with the culture because God doesn't change. He's the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. We don't have to seek our own justice or our own revenge because it's the Lord who executes vengeance and judgment perfectly. So you and I are wonderfully, beautifully free no matter what the political circumstances around us are. We are free to live in joyful obedience. We are free to repent, to come to him humbly and ask for forgiveness and to know that he does forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sin. We're free to live in the hope that the God who reigns in heaven will one day establish the throne of his glorious son, Jesus Christ. And that before him, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what do we think? How do we think as we think through that? First of all, we need to understand the problem of pride. This was not planned, but I don't believe in coincidence. That This is the first Sunday in what our world now refers to as Pride Month. A time when the nations and our culture in particular celebrate a perversion of what God has ordained and called good. A time when people assume that mankind can define things like gender, identity, marriage, and love as if we came up with them. A time when the uh, human race, it seems, in our pride takes the order of the God of creation and turns it on its head. And we need to remember that pride leads to destruction. And it shouldn't lead us to anger, maybe a righteous anger at the perversion of what God calls good. But more than that, it should lead us to a broken-hearted response to the world around us. 
because pride and the celebration of pride negates the gospel. For you and me as well, whether or not we go along with cultural norms, our pride is still what stands between us and forgiveness. Because in our pride, you and I in our flesh want to do something that merits God's favor. We want to be good enough. We want to be smart enough. We want to be educated enough. We want to be generous enough. We want to do something that means that God has to like me. And yet the best that we can offer is filthy rags that are eternally of no value. But God, being rich in mercy, did what we could not do. The gospel cries out about our humility. How do we engage with a culture that has lost its mind by being saturated with the gospel that reminds us of who God is so we speak boldly, who I am so I speak humbly, and what he can do with ruined sinners which makes us speak hopefully to a culture that seems beyond lost? That's the second thing we need to remember is God's precious promises. Those promises that God gave through the book of Obadiah, I think would have been a comfort to a bruised and broken people. It did not dismiss or minimize their sin. But I think Obadiah serves as a reminder that even in judgment, God is faithful to his people. It's a reminder that he would redeem and restore them. So what has God promised us? Not a land from river to river. What has God promised us? Well, God has promised you and I that if he loves us, that if we are his, he will discipline us. But that that discipline, rather than shattering us, will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what Hebrews 12 says. God has promised us that he will complete the good work that he started in us. So when we fall and when we fail, it's not the end point. It's another example of God's grace that picks us up and points us forward in faithful obedience to him. He's promised us that because he lives, you and I can anticipate resurrection bodies that are fit to dwell with him for eternity. And that because of that, death has lost its fearful sting. That's 1 Corinthians 15. He's promised that he'll build his church, that the gates of hell won't prevail against it that no culture war, no political revolution, no military oppression is sufficient to overcome the power of the gospel because the power of gospel lies in the God who sits enthroned over all creation. Let's pray. Lord, you're good, and you are mighty. You are the God of the nations, although the nations certainly do not acknowledge you as God. Lord, we live in a nation that seems to be running as far away from you as fast as it possibly can. And Lord, what we need is not political revolution. What we need is a radical spiritual change. Lord, we pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine brightly in these dark times. That you would cause us to be a humble people, broken of all of our pride, so that we can make much of you so that in our weakness you might be demonstrated as strong, so that in our brokenness you might be demonstrated as perfectly whole, that in our sin you might show that your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfectly holy one, 
has made a way to cover sinners in his righteousness and not their own. Thank you for Obadiah, this little book with a major message to us. We worship you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.